Welcome to the Ag Future Podcast, presented by Alltech. Join us as we explore the future of farming, food, and nutrition. I'm here today with Robin Anderson, president and founder of Emerging Ag, Inc. Hi, Robin. How are you today? Great to see you, David. Thanks. Um, tell us a little bit about Emerging Ag and what you do. Well, I, it's a company that's spread out around the globe. There are 22 of us on the team, and we work on agricultural policy really at a global level. So whether that means working with agricultural trade associations or individual companies or farmer groups or agricultural scientists, we, uh, we try and make sure the voice of agriculture gets heard in the context of the United Nations and other venues where people are talking about how you set agricultural policy. Okay, that sounds pretty exciting. And you must be doing a pretty good job because I know that you are in the Canadian Agricultural Hall of Fame. Oh, thank you. Yes, it was a, <laughs> it was a great honor. Um, yes, my life is very exciting for a girl who grew up in a small town in Dugald, Manitoba on a farm. Uh, I did not expect to get to see so much of the world. Yeah. And I find that agriculture is just a great unifying part of, um, of, of lens with which to see the world. Because when you get out onto farms, whether it's in Africa or Asia or any other part of the world, there is something about farming that might be done differently. They might be growing different crops. But there's something about the reality of being from a farm that's that's kind of the same. It's practical. Uh, the weather is still a big factor. It's hard work. And, and those communities are very welcoming. Yeah. So you mentioned that weather is a big factor. And, of course, that's always been true for farming. There's all sorts of uncertainty around the weather and lots of different variables, which make it very challenging. And it seems like more and more that's an even bigger problem with extreme weather events around the globe. What what are you seeing that's a serious challenge for farmers? Well, it, weather has undoubtedly, as you said, always been one of the toughest parts of farming. And it always seems that the rain never comes when you need it or it comes too much. Uh, it's been the case on our farm a bit lately. Everybody feels this this change from the norm. There used to be patterns. It was always variable. But now even the sense of the way the seasons work, it really does seem to be changing quite a bit. I was in Kenya for much of the month of March, and their their rain season would normally have started about mid-March. And I left at the end of the month, and it was still not started. And the rains have started to come now, but weeks behind schedule. And it really, you get that sense. And for us on our farm in, in Canada, you see more and more flooding pressure year on year on year. It's no longer just once every 40 or 50 years that you're feeling like the Red River is going to swallow you up. It's just, it's a changing world. And I think this is what is giving extra credence to a discussion that scientists started many years ago, saying something is afoot. We are having too big an impact on our environment. Yeah, that certainly seems to be true. So because um, extreme weather and climate change are becoming a bigger and bigger issue, it's very important to look at what we can do to mitigate our greenhouse gas emissions in every industry, not just agriculture. And uh, you spent some time looking at that. So what do you see that's promising? What are, what are some opportunities we have to do that? Well, I was here at Alltech. There was an 
an awesome panel, and I was really lucky to be on it with a set of actors who were working on all very different aspects of that. Part of what I was talking about specifically is that anything that we do in our businesses, we need to measure. So we would never go into a sales program and not know what our target was and what our sales figure was and what our cost of delivering that product would be. You wouldn't be in business otherwise. And the uh, the same applies really if we want to take climate change seriously. So that means looking at how we are measuring inside our individual businesses. So one of the gentlemen on the panel was talking about actually pricing in carbon into their business planning. Um, and in terms of their internal budgeting. But what I was talking about also is the need for the sector as a whole to be engaged in measurement. I use the particular example of the uh, Global Dairy Platform, which has helped to set up the um, dairy sustainability framework. And now about 30% of the milk sector, total volume of milk, is actually reporting in through this framework. So that's a really big jump forward. And it's not just about climate change. Climate change is incredibly important. But if we're only looking at it from an agricultural perspective on greenhouse gas emissions, I think we're missing the range of things that we need to be involved in. And that includes looking at water and are we drawing down too much or are we polluting it on the way out? And these are very concrete, measurable things. And by reporting in together, we can begin to understand what's happening and actually have a conversation about what needs to be done. One thing that we saw that really surprised a lot of people is that the assumption is greenhouse gas emissions are highest from dairy production in the developed world, an idea that large, intense farms would be naturally more polluting. But in fact, the efficiency of those productions shows that OECD countries have been consistently dropping their greenhouse gas emission rates, and they're really quite low. They're not down to zero, but they're really quite low. Whereas in developing countries where animals may go a dry season without being able to be fully productive, all of the emissions-related intensities are actually much higher because they don't have that production efficiency. So that's really important to understand. But I think it's also very true that if you consider the emission discussion, it's great that dairy is down 11% in the past 10 years in terms of how much carbon we're releasing for every liter of milk we produce. But if you consider that the world still continues to need a total reduction in carbon, you have to be looking in agriculture to make use of agriculture's great asset because agriculture can also do carbon sinks. That is what we do, right? We grow stuff. We put carbon into the soil. We take um, carbon out of the air for those plants. And the opportunity really does exist for all of us to be looking at a net zero emission intensity or below, because if we do the right things on our farms, we can, we can get to that level so that we can grow the amount of milk we're producing that is needed in the world, but do it in a way that isn't actually helping to destroy the world through releasing too much greenhouse gas. Yeah, that opportunity that agriculture has is very exciting. Can you talk a little bit about some of the practices that can help sequester carbon? Absolutely. So um, if you're thinking about a farm as having a land footprint, what kind of things are you growing on that land? So 
farmers can do concrete things like plant more trees. A lot of farms actually already have trees around their houses to help protect them from weather, ironically. Um, so what are you doing to put long-term crops? Um, if you're looking at the livestock sector, pasture is a great carbon sink. Are you managing that pasture well and protecting it? Also, if you think about um, the dairy sector, for instance, um, anaerobic digestion, manure management, um, and sequestering that into a facility where you are actually producing renewable energy is an incredibly powerful part of reducing the, the greenhouse gas footprint of your farm. And Farms actually have a lot of land, so whether your dairy barns have solar energy panels on the top of them, you're using perhaps manure management, maybe you're taking local food waste products and putting them in with your manure manager to further that energy production. You can look at a wind turbine on your farm, but farms really can get energy or neutral or renewable energy sourced, and even some farms are now moving to actually put onto the grid renewable energy, which gives it a double whammy. And that's how you can get to that negative footprint level. So it, there's just such an incredible opportunity of managing well, of using conservation tillage, of really thinking about how you are engineering that system. And the great thing is at the promise end of that is actually the potential to earn some money from that energy you're putting back into the grid. So if, especially if you're working in collaboration with others, there's an opportunity for it not only to be the right thing to do, but to be a really good business decision. Yeah. So when you're talking about earning money, you're talking about selling carbon credits, right? To other businesses. That, that is an opportunity, but I'm thinking actually about putting electricity back onto a grid. You get paid oh, for the electricity you generate. So that that's a, a clearer path to a, a business. Okay. Yeah, and I suppose electricity and energy use in general is kind of a small percentage of the carbon footprint from the farm, but a farm has uh, potential to generate much more electricity than that and offset nearby homes or businesses and so sort of balance the equation, right? Exactly. Whether you're making a compressed natural gas or a conventional elect electricity product, that is exactly the opportunity that farms have have this resource available to them because they have a land footprint. Um, now you need to work collaboratively with your local electricity grid to to be part of the renewable sources there. And some farms are are working quite well together to achieve that. So you see some of the cooperatives, for instance, in the dairy sector, working together to get their members having a bulk buy onto the grid because getting access onto that grid is the uh, is the challenge. But energy is actually quite a high input cost in a lot of farms. And so even if you got your, your electricity costs down in your own operation, that would be a big benefit. And then to, to produce a surplus that you could actually use as a revenue stream is just one example of how you can really get, get to zero because everybody says that's impossible. But farms really have this unique opportunity and especially how they manage their carbon sinks on their farms as well. That would be fantastic if um, many more farms were at zero uh, greenhouse gas emissions because there's so much negative publicity about the amount of greenhouse gases that are produced on farm. And you mentioned a little earlier that it's very important to look at data. 
you had an example yesterday where that shows it's important to look at the data in multiple ways, right? When you were talking about uh, the carbon output of New Zealand and Ireland and the different ways you can look at that. It, it is a, a strangely quirky thing that um, when you look at a chart about greenhouse gas outputs, New Zealand and Ireland pop higher than countries like China and some other places that you would expect would have much higher greenhouse gas emission um, implications. And from you're saying from the dairy sector specifically, right? So that that is the calculation is because both of them are very effective dairy producers that they are that this is counting very high in what the the proportion of their greenhouse gas emissions are and so does that mean that two countries that have a very moderate climate perfectly adapted to dairying that have beautiful grasslands that are easily maintained through natural rainfall aren't the best place to produce milk. And really what's counting against them is they're such a good producer that they are exporting milk and serving the rest of the world. But because that production happens in their country, they carry 100% of those omissions. But if you went off and set up a um, dairy in, I'm going to pick an arbitrary country here, in um, Amman or in the middle of a desert somewhere, it is not going to be probably a more greenhouse gas efficient or more environmentally sustainable solution because it's happening in that other country because you're going to have to irrigate that land. You're not going to have the same natural cycles. You're might potentially going to have to provide cooling to those dairy cows to be productive because they're not used to that kind of heat. And the result will be um, actually potentially a bad outcome if we don't find ways to recognize where we produce things efficiently. And the current discussions about climate change actually really hone in on a country's responsibility for what they're producing, and that makes a certain amount of sense. But when you're talking about global trade, especially in food, it's really important that we also find a way to make the right decisions globally, that we're not turning over lands that are inappropriate for some things and making them into lands uh, that are are therefore being used because as a Canadian farmer, we're not, I don't think we're going to be growing mangoes in Canada. We will have gone a long way down the climate change path. If suddenly banana trees and tropical plants or mangoes are growing in the middle of Canada, we, we grow some other things really, really effectively. And I think you can see that paradigm potentially going in the wrong direction. And if I might just add one more thing to that, it's really important to consider that as we're having more extreme weather, that is, trade becomes even more important. So you just don't know what's going to hit where, who's going to have a drought and who's going to have a cyclone and who's going to have a flood. And one of the things that the FAO produced recently was to talk about just how important global trade is going to be in food. It's always been important, but it becomes our backup system to food security. And so it is really important that we think about how to manage this in a way that um, the trade is actually encouraged and that the best, most ecologically sound producers are being encouraged to use it. Yeah, I'm sure it's incredibly difficult to write global agreements or or treaties on things like 
greenhouse gas emissions and there are there's certainly the potential for some inadvertent mistakes and when you're looking at greenhouse gas um, emissions on an industry per capita for a small country that excels in that industry it the number looks horrible but if you look at it per liter or gallon of milk it's a completely different picture right so how do we tell that message and and make sure that those decisions are being made in a sensible way that makes you know good policy for everybody well it is really it is really challenging i've had the opportunity to go to some of the un climate change meetings they're very large meetings there's a lot on the agenda it's a really complicated process one thing they deserve a lot of credit for is that the climate change negotiations have really heard from NGOs and businesses and scientists alike. So it's a space where having a serious conversation is possible. Um, and as we've moved to getting serious about national emissions, the the inequities of this position become cl more clear. And it is possible to then say, okay, well, now we understand that. Um, in a way, we didn't understand it before. And the agricultural sector has to be doing those numbers, has to be doing those measurements so you can explain the efficiency level on this is very high. There are some dairy farms in America that are getting to zero. So it's not impossible. It is actually really happening. And you want to make sure that the, the discussion to advance our our goals of cutting greenhouse gas emissions don't create perverse subsidies for the wrong sorts of actions. So for instance, strangely, if you were to till under all that pasture and grassland in New Zealand or Ireland, you might argue that then once they meant back to pasture land, they would get a carbon credit for creating a carbon sink, but they would have done something that actually caused more release of carbon so that they could get the credits for doing it. So we really want to find ways to talk about agricultural production that have the practical voice of farmers there and don't lead countries to make decisions to hit numbers that actually lead to the wrong outcomes. So there, are, it is a complex piece of work to navigate that, but we didn't get to climate change without doing a lot of complex things. So it's going to take a fair amount of concerted effort to, to find a path forward. Yeah, good point. Um, there's certainly a lot of uh, accounting and measurement that we need to do to make sure that we're mitigating climate change. Um, but it's very important to get that right. If we, if we think we're doing everything we need to and, and we're not making the right decisions, we're in a lot of trouble. We, we've just discussed the weather lately. I think we're, we're in some trouble. And, uh, and now it is really about the path to get out, but you don't want to make the path to get out worse. Yeah. We, we, we will have to, like anyone finding their way out of a forest, we'll probably make a few wrong turns, but we, we want to at least be headed towards the edge of the forest, not going deeper in the other way. Are there things going on right now in the industry to uh, try to help reduce emissions for um, low and middle income countries that have traditionally low productivity? Some, but not remotely enough. Um, it is a strange thing that uh, 
agriculture receives very little of the global development budget, only about 5% a year of all of the money that's going into development assistance goes into agriculture. Even though 80% of the people living in multidimensional poverty, which means that they live below $1.25 a day, they don't have access to schools, they don't have access to hospitals, they, they live in rural areas, so they're farmers. 80% of the, the world's most needy are in a rural context. And yet only 5% of development money going to agriculture is already wrongheaded. But then on top of that, if you consider that of that 5%, only 4% goes to livestock. We're talking about minute amounts of the development budgets going to important factors where they're needed. And many communities in these areas actually have a very strong livestock tradition. So it's really important that more gets done, but there are some, some things happening. So there's the International Livestock Research Institute, which is based in uh, Kenya, but operates um, quite globally in developing country contexts. I have the good fortune to work with them on a number of things, but in, you know there are some really innovative things that they've been part of the leadership on. One of them is um, indexed livestock insurance. So if you're in a situation where there's a drought, there's extreme weather, rather than doing what we've traditionally done, which is to say, here's livestock insurance, we're gonna wait until that animal dies. So your herd is wiped out and an entire community that might be based on that herd has had their lifestyle devastated, their perhaps nomadic, they're in a situation that they have completely destabilized the population. Instead, taking a look at overall weather trends, seeing that clearly there is a drought and the index livestock insurance actually is meant to buy feed for those animals so that they are in a position to um, make sure that those animals don't die. So rather than waiting until a terrible outcome and suggesting that you can just buy back your, your loved one, if you were to use a hospital analogy, right? You, you don't treat them at all while they're striving to death, but afterwards you give a big payout for their death. You should do the opposite. You should get that, that assistance in. So it's a really simple, concrete thing that if you're in agriculture, of course you should send in feed. But we, we've really struggled to get that kind of practical agricultural lens onto a lot of the interventions. That may, that's a really good analogy. It needs to be more like health insurance and less like car insurance, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Robin. It was great talking to you. Pleasure. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Ag Future Podcast, presented by Alltech. For show notes and more episodes, visit alltech.com forward slash agfuture. future.